welcome to episode 20 of Everything Under the Sun, a weekly podcast answering all the most pressing questions children around the world have about life on Earth. My name is Molly and today I have three questions. They're about spherical things, the moon, bubbles and planets. Our first question is about the moon and it comes from Dottie. Over to Dottie. My name's Dottie and I'm four. I like the moon and rainbows and everything. I'd like to know why we only see one side of the moon. Thank you. Hi Dottie, that's a great question. To answer it, I have Doug from the Science Museum in London. Well, my name is Doug, that's short for Douglas, and I'm the Deputy Keeper of Technologies and Engineering at the Science Museum in London. Dottie, what a great question. Why do we only see one side of the moon? Well, the moon is spinning, just like the Earth spins. But the moon spins at the same rate that it goes around the Earth. That means we always see the same side of the moon, more or less. Thanks, Doug, for your brilliant answer. Isn't it incredible that the movement of the Earth and moon are such that we always see the same side of the moon? We also only ever see the same face of the planet Venus. It spins in the opposite direction to Earth, but when it comes close to us, it always shows us the same face, just like the moon. But how much of the moon do you think we can see? It isn't half, it's actually slightly more. We only see one face of the moon, but the moon moves around from side to side and back to forth quite a bit as it goes around, which is called libration, which is spelled L-I-B-R-A-T-I-O-N. It means to swing. This moving about of the moon means that if you look at the moon for a month, over that time, you'd have seen about 59% of the moon, so slightly over half. The face of the moon we never get to see is called the far side of the moon, and only a few humans have seen it. No one has set foot on it, but last year the Chinese landed a little spacecraft there and took photos. On the near side of the moon, which is the side we can see, you can still see footprints left by astronauts who stepped onto the moon, including the footprints of Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, the very first men on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I have seen the spacesuit Neil Armstrong was wearing and his space boots in the Smithsonian Museum of Air and Space in Washington, DC. They're behind the scenes of the museum. That was when I was writing my first book, The Secret Museum. I hope you'll check it out with your parents. It was incredible to see the very boots that took their one giant leap onto the moon. Did you know that Buzz Aldrin's mum's name before she got married was Marion Moon? So if she hadn't changed her surname when she got married and gave Buzz her name, he would have been called Buzz Moon. His real name is not Buzz, it's Eugene, but his sister couldn't say his name when she was a baby, so called him Buzzer, meaning brother, and the name Buzz just stuck. One final thing about the moon is, if the moon and the earth were both balls, the earth would be about the size of a basketball, and the moon the size of a tennis ball. The moon is much smaller than the earth. The moon would be about 7.3 metres away from the bowling ball earth. Yet even though it's much smaller and far away, the moon has such a great effect on our planet. It even affects the tides of the oceans and rivers on Earth. I hope that answers your question, Dottie. If you have a question you would like answered on the show, all you have to do is ask an adult to record you asking it and ask them to send it in to me at molly at everythingunderthesun.co.uk. 
now we're going on to our second question, which is about another spherical object in space. Planets. This question about planets comes from Ahmed. Hi, Ahmed. My name is Ahmed and I'm four years old and I want to know why, why planets have cores. Thanks, Ahmed, for your brilliant question. Well, this is a really tricky one. So I have asked a very excellent expert called Brother Guy, who is the director of the Vatican Observatory in Italy, to answer your question. I met Brother Guy when I was writing The Secret Museum, all about things that are in museums but hidden away behind locked doors. He showed me the Pope's collection of meteorites, as well as three pieces of the planet Mars, which also belong to the Pope. So I thought Brother Guy would be the perfect person to answer Ahmed question. Over to Brother Guy. Hi Ahmed, great question. Why do planets have cores? I'm Brother Guy Consolmagno. I'm the director of the Vatican Observatory and for years I took care of their meteorite collection. I did research on how small bodies were formed and why small bodies might have cores and might not have cores. And all of this gives me kind of an insight Although, of course, we never know for sure. Important thing to know about science, and you may grow up to find a better answer than the one I give you. But here's what we think is going on. Planets are formed around a star in the cloud of gas and dust that went into forming that star. So if you've got dust forming a planet, you've got all of this stuff, some of its ice and some of its rock and some of its metal and different types of rock, all blurred together into one big lump that grows like a snowball, the bigger it gets, the more mass it has, the more mass it has, the more it attracts things, the more it attracts things, the bigger it gets, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until it runs out of things to make itself. At that point, what you can do is imagine all of this dust under its own weight pulling itself into a ball. Among the things in the dust are very radioactive elements. Now these are isotopes and elements that we don't have anymore because they've all decayed away. They decay really fast. Every time they decay, they give off a little bit of heat. Well, because they're decaying fast, they're giving off heat very quickly, which means over a given period of time, there's a lot of heat coming out right about then. This heat is gonna melt the ice if there's ice there, and then all of the rock will fall to the bottom of the planet, which makes a core. If there's even more heat, or if the planet's a little bit bigger, and so it could hold its heat for a longer period of time, then even the rock begins to melt. Sometimes even the iron begins to melt. And the iron is the densest of the stuff, so it falls through the rock to form the core. The rock is not quite as dense. It'll float on top or eventually stick above the planet. If you've got ice, you could even have ice on the surface area like you have for, say, the moons of Jupiter. But even if you don't have ice, if it's big enough to hold onto its heat to melt the rock, then the rock will allow the iron to fall to the center. If it's big enough to hold onto its heat so that the, even the iron melts, the iron will melt through whatever rock is there that hasn't melted, and you wind up with layers of rock layered on the basis of their density. The heaviest stuff for a given volume is at the center, the lightest stuff for a given volume, the stuff rich in aluminum, the white-colored rocks that you see in mountains, granites, and things like that. Those are the rocks that, in essence, float to the top of the planet. We think that's how planets form and evolve into this multi-layered system with cores and outer pieces. Hope that helps, and I also hope that someday you come up with a better answer when you become a scientist. Great talking to you, Ahmed. 
Thanks so much, brother guy. That's a fantastic answer. I really hope it answers your question, Ahmed. If you have a question you would like answered on the show, don't forget to ask an adult to record you asking it and send it in to me at molly at everythingunderthesun.co.uk. Our third question is about something else spherical, although much, much smaller, and this time under the sea. It's about bubbles, and it comes from Evelyn in Australia. Hi, Evelyn. Hello, my name's Evelyn, and I am seven years old. I live in in Adelaide in South Australia. My question is, why do parrotfish sleep in bubbles made of snot? Well, Evelyn, you're really clever to know about how parrotfish sleep in bubbles. For kids listening who don't know already, when parrotfish go to sleep at night, they make a bubble out of mucus, otherwise known as snot, to sleep inside. It's a bit like a homemade sleeping bag. Do you like to sleep in a sleeping bag made of snot? I don't think I would, but parrotfish do. But why do they do that? To answer Evelyn's question, why do they do that? Well, it's because the snotty bubble stops them from being nibbled by little parasites, which are like the mosquitoes of the sea that live on the reef. During the day, these parasites are eaten up by fish called cleaner fish, but at night, the cleaner fish are sleeping. So parrotfish have come up with snot bubbles as a way to protect themselves. Nasty parasites can't bite them through the snotty bubble. It's a bit like sleeping in a mosquito net. You might have done that sometime or other on holiday, or if you live somewhere really hot with lots of mosquitoes. It's to stop ourselves from being bitten by mosquitoes when we're sleeping. It takes parrotfish less than an hour to make a fresh one every night out of their own snot, and it takes only about 2.5% of their daily energy to do that. So it's really worth it for the parrotfish to get a good night's sleep. Parrotfish and other fish called wrasse that also live around coral reefs are the only animals that cover themselves totally in a homemade sleeping bubble to go to sleep. They have special glands in their gills so that they can do this. Some scientists have other ideas about the snot bubbles, thinking they're an early warning shield. So if something like an eel comes to attack the parrotfish, the parrotfish will feel the eel bump into the bubble and then swim away. Or other scientists think that maybe the snot helps to repair any damage to the fish's body, and others think perhaps it provides protection from UV light in the sunshine. I like the parasite theory that it's to stop being bitten like we'd use a mosquito net. Did you know that lots of beautiful white sandy beaches in the Maldives, tropical islands in the Indian Ocean, might be made of parrotfish poop? Parrotfish have sharp beak-like teeth and can eat hard coral while they're looking for algae to eat. When they eat coral, their poop comes out as white sand. Parrotfish poop make up about 85% of all the sand produced on the reef around the islands of the Maldives. So if you ever get lucky enough to go on holiday there and walk along the beach, remember, you're walking on a lot of parrotfish poop. The same goes for the white sandy beaches of Hawaii. They're made of parrotfish poop too. Just one parrotfish can make one tonne of white sand each year by pooing it out of its bottom. So protecting the parrotfish is essential for protecting the beaches of beautiful tropical islands. I hope that answers your question, Evelyn. Right, that's it for this week. Wishing you all a very lovely week. A huge thank you to Brother Guy at the Vatican for telling us all about why planets have cores, to Doug at the Science Museum in London for telling us about why we only see one side of the moon, and to Ahmed, Evelyn and Dottie for this week's questions. A big thank you to Ash Gardner at House of Strange for the theme song and Audio Networks for all the lovely incidental music we use this week. 
I'll be back next week answering more questions from children around the world in another episode of Everything Under the Sun. Do send in your questions. There's info about how to do that on the show's website, everythingunderthesun.co.uk. If you like the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. And please tell all your friends at school to do the same. It really does help. I'm looking forward to hearing all of your questions. Thank you. Have a lovely time and goodbye. Goodbye.